That's God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Uh, just a quick introduction. I'm Josh. Uh, Mark leads the kids from birth up to fifth grade, and then I take over in sixth grade and completely demolish everything Mark did. So uh, I teach sixth grade through twelfth grade. We meet on Wednesday nights. Um, it's an awesome time. We get together, we study the word, we worship, and we get into small groups. Just a little plug right now. Um, kind of my need and our need as a group would be female mentors. Um, we have a couple mentors who left, college-age girls who had to go do other stuff. Um, but if you have a heart for discipling in a smaller setting, and specifically you're a female, not some creepy 40-year-old guy, we'd love to talk. Um, I've got a few people I have in mind that God's laid on my heart that I'll be talking to. But if you feel like, yeah, I could get together with some 6th, 7th grade girls and talk about God and how the Bible applies to your life, then please Email me at joshwad at redemptionaz, or the easy thing would be to grab me as I'm eating donuts in between service. So you pick. Um, kind of a crazy day. Luke is our main pastor, and he is gone for three weeks. Matthew is second in command, essentially. He runs the show, and he's gone today. So it's me and that guy Josh in the back, complete rookies up here. So if it seems a little amateur, it's because the amateurs got the time. So Luke's gone for three weeks. He went to a retreat with a bunch of pastors to get refreshed, and now he's in Colorado hanging out with family. Matthew is exercising because that's what he does. He's lame. He's up north riding his bike. So um, horrible. Um, anyways, so what Luke wanted me to do is make sure everybody understands where we're at. We're in Faithful, part two. Part one was Joseph. We looked at the last 12 chapters of Genesis, and we looked at the life of Joseph. So what I'd like you to do now is keep your finger in Daniel, and then flip over to the table of contents, and put your thumb there so we can get up to speed, Joseph up to Daniel, make sure we know where we're at in this book. If you have a smartphone and you're one of those people, I don't know how that's going to work. You figure it out. <coughs> But a little background. We started with Joseph way back in the day. So I want you to look at your table of content, content, contents. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books there. Mine goes from page 1 to 172. Here's what's happening. Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's the creation of the world in Genesis 1. Joseph gets reunited with his dad, Jacob, in 1876 B.C. So Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy then takes us to about 1446. We following? Now Moses is the guy writing all that, so he's the guy in charge. And here's what happens. Moses has a faith failure, and he was supposed to be the guy to take them into the land. God says, I'm going to take that blessing from you, and I'm going to raise up Joshua. And Joshua takes over, and God tells Joshua, you're going to go into this land and you're going to destroy everyone there, and you're going to set up shop there. It'd be like someone saying, you're going to go to Arizona. I want you to destroy the Phoenicians, the Tucsonians, the hippies in Flagstaff, the, the seven people in Blythe, the people in Casa Grande. I want you to destroy them all because they are evil, and they worship false gods, and they're just going to pollute you. So that's Joshua's command, and he does about 80% of the work. He destroys most, but he leaves enough to where they're going to be polluted for the rest of the Bible. So Joshua, that's 1399. Joshua goes into land, kicks some butt of most people, but, oh, they're cute. Let's not mess with them. He leaves enough people to where there's an issue. And then the people, as they so often do, they start to complain. We don't like the leadership. They start messing up. So Judges is the book after Joshua. And here's how it works. So I see Tim Campbell. Tim Campbell would be a part of the Joshua generation. He'd go into the land. Tim Campbell and his folks die off, and they don't do a good job telling their kids about God and everything he's done. And Judges ends with a bunch of horrible little teenagers coming up who don't know God, don't know his promises, don't really care about obedience, and Judges is called The Cycle of Sin. It's just a horrible book, horrible book of sin. And that lasts about 300 years. <clears throat> Next, 
1 Samuel, the people complained again. This is not our fault. We don't have a good leader. We need a king. Everyone else around us has a king. We need a king. Okay. I'll raise up the good-looking guy because they're usually the best leader, so they raise up Saul. And Samuel, the judge, raises up Saul. And Saul's kingdom lasts for, anybody know? Bible boot camper? 40 years. So Saul reigns 40 years. He's really insecure. He's kind of just a weird, insecure man. He's always looking over his shoulder. Oh, David, everybody likes this David guy. Um, these guys over here think David should be king, and he's just a horrible king. He lasts 40 years. Second Samuel in your, in your table of contents there, this is where it gets a little fishy as you start to jump around a bunch of kings. Second Samuel, David. We all know David. He did some bad stuff. He killed this giant. He did a bunch of stuff, but he reigns 40 years. And he covers Second Samuel and First Chronicles. David has a son, Solomon, who's the wisest man to ever live, and he takes over in 971, and first kings there is Solomon's life. Next slide. And then this is where it gets really bad. Second Kings and Second Chronicles, Solomon has the same problem as David, same problem as most men. He likes girls, and specifically, he likes girls who worship other gods. So Solomon's heart is divided during his reign because he's married to a lot of women with a lot of different deities tugging at his heart. So like Solomon's heart, which is divided, the kingdom divides in 931. And then if you're looking at a timeline, it goes like this. Northern kingdom is ten tribes. Southern is two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, Brazelton's kids. <coughs> And if you're watching a timeline, here's what happens. They're cruising along, and the north stops in 722 because Assyria, that's who Jonah was sent to go to, they're horrible people, go tell them to repent. Syria takes over and just demolishes the northern kingdom. They stop in 722. We continue on, and we get to Daniel in 605. Everybody tracking with that? So, just your, your math people. Joseph was 1800. Daniel is 600, 1,200 years have passed. So if you think about America, about 200 some odd years, that's six Americas. George Washington, Obama, George Washington, Obama, George Washington, Obama, George Washington, six times over. So it's a huge chunk of time that's passed. So these people aren't, Daniel's aware of Joseph, obviously. Joseph has no idea, nor does he care about the future people. 1,200 years have passed. And here's what's happening in the world. Assyria, who dominated, has now been dominated by Babylon. And there's a king of Babylon who's just kicking some butt. And then his son takes over, Nebuchadnezzar. And in 605, Nebuchadnezzar rises to the throne. And the first thing he does, how am I going to make sure the people around me fear me and want to worship me? I'll go to these people and take out their best folks. And that's where we're at, is... Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem, and he takes out the prime people of, the Israel's, of Israel's nation. Daniel's one of those folks. Pretty good, huh? Should be a history teacher. Let's get into Daniel 1. So here's essentially what we're going to study. Daniel chapter 1, and here's why it's important. There's a lot of ways to measure your Christianity. So as I was thinking through it, I was looking at my son. How am I going to measure as he grows into the faith how he's doing. You could do a creed test. You could catechize him and teach him and teach him the Bible and then quiz him. Who wrote Matthew? Uh, who wrote Luke? What's the theme of Ezekiel? There's a creed test. How much do you know? The head knowledge. You can have that test, and that's not a bad test. The Bible wants us to grow in knowledge. Uh, there's the commandment test. How well are you conforming to the image of Christ? Are you getting more and more and more Christ-like. So those are the two tests. Uh, Friday morning I was making breakfast. My sweet wife, who's 8 and 90% months pregnant or so, is reading a Bible story to my son. Hey, come read. Noah was on a boat and blah, blah, blah. Now, punches her in the stomach. So He's not quite there in, as far as Christianity goes. He hates the Bible, and he punches pregnant women. He's not doing too well. Here's why Daniel's important. There's a third test that is harder to gauge, just it's a little more, uh, takes some discernment, 
is the commission test. Matthew tells us that we're to make disciples of all nations. So the third test would be, how well are you going out and bringing disciples into the faith and then going out and doing it again, going out and doing it again? How well are you heading into culture and actually changing people's hearts by the help of the Holy Spirit? And that's what Daniel talks about for us, is how well are we going into culture and actually making an impact for Christ and his kingdom? Does that make sense? Okay. So here we go. Daniel 1. This breaks down super simple. There's three sections. We'll talk about the culture that Daniel finds himself in. We'll talk about the conviction that Daniel held in the culture. And then we'll talk about the commitment God kept to Daniel through this culture. Pretty simple. So Daniel 1. Let's do this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So I've just got five points I pull out of this first section, one through seven, that are pretty simple. First one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed stuff, took people out. My first point is simple. Culture is created long before we get there. So Daniel didn't show up and kind of create the culture he was a part of. We have a slide for this? I think so. Daniel didn't show up, and the culture was kind of formed around him. The culture was set way back when they started being disobedient and following other gods, and Daniel shows up in a culture that's already been set up. Same way we do today. Francis Schaeffer, who wrote back in the 60s, said, tell me what the world is saying now, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in 20 years. Meaning, culture flows downward. It's like a tsunami. The tsunami in Japan happened... I don't know, a year, two, two years ago. And now we're getting news reports of Oregon getting stuff floating on shore. Culture happens back then, whatever it is, an ideological change, 60s, all the change that happened in the 60s, and it flows downward, and now we are recipients of what was started way back when. So culture happens before we get there. Daniel shows up, the kingdom's broke, the kings are horrible, nobody's obedient, He's just this 15-year-old kid, and he shows up in a culture that's completely been set up for failure before he gets there. That's not very exciting. Oh, man. Here's what I see in verse 2. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Culture is always controlled by God. So you can be pessimistic and, oh, America's going horrible, and maybe it is. I don't really know. I'm only 29. But the point is, God is controlling everything. We got a verse, 2 Kings 24. I want you to turn there. I'll turn there. If you know where it's at, it's back a little bit. 2 Kings 24. This is a good verse on God's control over everything. 24, verse 1 and 2. This is talking about the same situation that's happened. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar days. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. God's controlling this. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So Jehoiakim kind of gets a little courage and tries to step up to Nebuchadnezzar, and here's what God does. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Point being, no matter how bad the culture is you live in, no matter how bad you think it is, God is controlling everything. Not like an evil puppeteer, but he is moving people and directing people and sending the Syrians to kill Jehoiakim. And he's got the people in power he wants in power here in this world. He is controlling it all. So even though culture is thrust upon us, we're not fearful because God is in control. Third verse in Daniel. Actually, end of second verse. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Third thing we see about culture. 
Culture is led and governed by its idols. So for Nebuchadnezzar, he had these deities that he had to keep at bay. So he went, took his stuff, and everything is driven by fear or guilt or shame or pride or something that has to do with the idolatry of the people. This is why in the book of Acts, Paul shows up in Athens and it says his heart was stirred because of the idolatry there. Every culture, whatever it is, is driven by idols. Tim Keller, Luke said, you want to preach? Sure. If you don't quote Tim Keller, I will church discipline you. You better quote Keller. <laughs> Got it. Tim Keller says our three idols are sex, money, and power. That's what everything is governed by in the culture we live in today. Same was true in Nebuchadnezzar's day. The, the culture uh, idols don't really change. They all revolve around pride and having more than the other person and just selfishness. But culture is always led and governed by its idols. As a youth pastor and as a teacher, youth has its own cultural idols that they follow. Us older people have our same idols that we follow. Everybody's got their idols. One of the most interesting verses I've ever read is in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon says, everything that you do is because of the people around you. That's a paraphrase. But his point is, everything we ever decide to do, every action we take, every motivation we have, is always influenced by peer pressure. And he's not talking to teenagers only. He's talking to adults. I need that house because they're watching me. I need that car because she's watching me. Everything we do is governed by that. It's an intense verse. Let's go to verse 3. Fourth thing I see in this. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So Daniel here is a noble person, probably a prince. Use without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Fourth thing I pull out of this in Daniel's time, Daniel shows up, and they say, eat this. Read this. You're going to study here for three years. Culture is never passive. Culture is pressing on us all the time. Whatever culture it is you find yourself, for Daniel in Babylon, it was you are going to think, act, look, smell like a Babylonian. Your Jewish ways we don't care about. We want you to conform to our image. Culture is never, ever, ever passive. It's always pressing on us. The last thing we see, verse 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And of the, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Still hard names to say. Last one, culture is always imposing an identity on us. So Daniel showed up, and it's just completely blatant. You're not Daniel anymore. You're going to be this guy, and you're not Azariah anymore. You're going to be this guy. We don't come into culture, and people change our names, but they're always trying to affect our identity. I see it with, um, should I, Aubrey said don't, I'll use her. She's like, are you going to talk about me? No, I promise. So my wife, Aubrey, <laughs> I see it with, the culture of women through my wife. So I don't know when this started, but to be a woman now and to feel like you're doing your job, you've got to work a job and be super successful, and you've got to climb the ladder. You've got to look really good doing it. You can't ever gain weight. You've got to be a mom at the same time and kick butt as a mom. You can't ever drop your guard. You've got to be an awesome businesswoman, look good doing it, be an awesome mom. You've got to blog about all the stuff you're doing. You've got to throw killer birthday parties with like real elephants. And you've got to take pictures that are like professional photos. And then you've got to send those to all your family members every time an event happens. 
And anytime someone shows up at your house, your house has got to be clean and you got to look good. And that's not from Jesus. <laughs> that's the feminist movement gone crazy. I don't know. But to be a woman seems like the most crushing thing ever. Us guys don't have that. We just can play video games for 47 and no one says a word to us. But culture is always pressing its identity on you. And you've got to be aware of that, otherwise you'll be crushed by it. Aubrey's job isn't to look great all the time and smell great all the time. It's to be faithful to God. Amen? Jesus shows up with Mary and Martha. And he says, Mary, you're doing the good thing. You're just hanging out with me. That's Jesus' identity. Hang with me. Don't worry what everyone else is saying. So that's the five things we pick up from culture. It's pressing on us. It's trying to twist our identity. It's trying to control every facet of our life. And that's where Daniel shows up in Babylon. He's a Jewish boy, about 14, 15 years old, and he shows up and they're saying, everything about you we want to change. And that's where he's at. And this isn't a nice culture. Nebuchadnezzar had probably killed people he loved, probably killed aunts and uncles. So it's not like it was a, a nice culture to be a part of. It's brutal. And he's there, and they're trying to change him. And how does Daniel respond? This is where it gets good. This is the conviction we see of Daniel. Jump down to verse 8. We're going to read 8 and 9. But Daniel, in the midst of all this, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It says Daniel resolved. Another uh, Bible passage says it the same way. It says he purposed in his heart. We got any 15-year-old kids in here? 14? 16? I'll take a 16-year-old. Greeby, stand up. You're the closest thing I have. <laughs> Look at Greeby. Do you shave yet? Not shaving yet. This is Daniel right here. He's a 15-year-old kid, and he purposes in his heart that he will not defile himself. He makes a decision deep down in his heart before anything happens that this is how I'm going to live. Thank you, Daniel. He says, I will not defile himself. Here's what's crazy as I read through this. As I'm thinking about Daniel and how I'd respond to him if I was his youth pastor, I probably would have said, it's just food, and it's just wine. It's no big deal. A lot of Christianity today is more concerned about being cool and getting in and not ruffling any feathers. And then once you're in, and then you can give them the Jesus punch. Daniel said, I will not defile myself with the king's stuff. Was the food really bad? Exodus, you don't have to turn there. Exodus 34, 15. This is Moses talking thousand years before this. Here's what he says to the people. Right before it, he says, you're going to be taken away, alluding to captivity. Here's what I want from you. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. He's saying, you do not swear allegiance to their gods. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. His point being, this wasn't just a McDonald's meal. Nebuchadnezzar would have sacrificed to pagan gods. He would have done a whole elaborate scheme to the pagan gods. And then he would have brought these Jewish boys before and said, now let's grub. And Daniel says, I'm not even going to take part because I don't want my heart at all pulled in that direction. What about the wine? Wine's good. I like wine. Proverbs 20, 11. This is Solomon talking. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. One more verse on the booze. Isaiah 5, 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. I probably would have said, Daniel, you're being too hard. It's about a relationship. It's not about a religion. Daniel would have said, 
it matters to me. This is my conviction. He had conviction. Conviction. Who has conviction anymore? I teach. One guy said he likes my stories of students, so I'll tell him. I teach the smartest kids we have on campus. It's called an IB program. It's basically an international program for very gifted students, and I have that group. And I am hammering them all the time. I mean, just drilling them, trying to pin them in a corner, because every time you say something of substance or of conviction, their response is, well, that's your thought. Well, that's your cultural bias. Well, that's, that's true for you, but uh, it's not true for me. Therefore, it's not true. And one time, this girl got after me, and she was pretty upset with me. And I said, listen, here's what I'm trying to get out of you. I want you guys to leave with some conviction. You guys are all jellyfish leaving this school. You have no conviction about anything. Good or bad, Jesus is in control if your conviction match up with mine in the Bible. But you got to believe stuff and believe it fully and with all your heart. And like Daniel, your purpose in your heart that it's true no matter what. Here's a killer, killer quote about modern day written 100 years ago. This is G.K. Chesterton. But what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition... Modesty has instead settled on the organ of conviction, meaning we're, you, we're supposed to be humble about our abilities and our skill as uh, computer engineers or whatever. Instead, we're humble about the very identity that sets us apart, the Bible, these things that are true. We're, we're humble about that, and I, I can't have convictions that are true because that's offensive. Continues. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. This is one of the best lines I've ever heard. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. His point being, our convictions are no longer convictions because that's offensive. So much so that we just sound stupid because we don't believe in anything. And that's where Daniel says, I may be 14, but I'm going to have convictions. No one's going to tell me otherwise. Conviction in what a lot of us, what I would consider a small thing. A very, very small thing if I was to counsel Daniel. But he had conviction. I like Daniel. I don't really like Daniel before this because all the Daniel preaching I've seen was like some crazy guy with feet and like the Roman Empire and all this stuff, end time stuff, but I like Daniel. He's a solid, solid young man. Let's continue on with him. This is verse 10. Young people, are you, f my people in my group, Thomas, conviction. You get that? Nobody has conviction. It's annoying, it's absurd, and it sends people to hell. You got to have conviction. What do you believe? Does it affect your life at all? Sorry, that's my frustration that should be on my students. I apologize. <laughs> Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than you who are of your own age? So the eunuch's saying, I get you don't want to eat this, but my butt's on the line. I don't know if I can agree to this. Here's what Daniel said. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Here's what I get out of this. Daniel could have gone about this a lot of ways. His convictions directly go against the culture he's in. He could have gone around somehow. He could have fought it. And just He could have, can I vote for a different leader? He could have done a lot of things in how he responded. Um, just to make sure Luke lets me preach again, I've got a second Keller thing for you. So he says, Bible, Keller, Bible, Keller, 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 Bible. That's his preaching outline. <laughs> so here's how Tim Keller 
kind of approaches our thoughts on culture. First one is just called unculture. This is the accommodationist. In this model, believers simply give in and adopt the pagan culture's values and worldview, both internally in their fundamental values, their convictions and perspectives, so I'm just a jellyfish, I'll form to whatever's around me, and externally by learning and adopting the customs and habits of dress, food, and language. So Daniel could have done this. I know I'm a Jew. I'm going to set that aside. For some reason, God has me here. I'm going to be a complete Babylonian. That would be unculture, a.k.a. the jellyfish. Here's the second one, subculture. This is one that's there's a struggle for all of us. So it's the private faith. In this model, believers keep the external trappings of Christian faith and practice, but they adopt the more fundamental values and perspectives of the dominant culture. So what does this mean? You can go back to that one. So this is your Sunday Christian. This is, I'm a Christian on Sunday, but if you ask my accountant, he doesn't know anything about my faith. If you ask my employees, they know nothing about my faith. It's, there's God in a box. Here's my life. I'm going to keep it private. It's a subculture. You still want to be a Christian, just not enough to where it's going to rub wrong in culture. Here's the third one, Keller says. Anti-culture. This is a good one. So this is an angry response. In this model, believers respond to the unbelieving culture with a sense of superiority and hostility. They feel highly polluted by the very presence of the unbelieving schools, entertainment, arts, and culture. And they feel they cannot really function in the society without having the cultural power. So this is... Let's vote in Christian leaders. Strange enough, this is Jonathan Edwards. He was, with all his might, trying to create a, crea a Christian world. God love him. It's not going to happen until Jesus shows up on a horse. Next one. Paraculture. This is revivalist. In this model, believers respond not with too much pessimism, but too much optimism. They expect a miraculous, sweeping intervention by God, which will convert many or most and explosively transform the culture. Therefore, instead of becoming deeply engaged with the society and people around them, working with others to roll back the troubles and problems, believers concentrate completely on evangelism and discipleship, building up the church in their own numbers. So this is, I don't know how I'm going to fix that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on this Christian subculture that I can affect, and I'm going to do my best to make it the best culture around. And you never, ever. So this is big in youth ministry because youth are crazy. And when young people get saved, it's very scary to be back in the culture because there's constant cussing. There's constant inappropriate relations. There's, it's just a, a dangerous culture because you take the parents away and the kids act like crazy. But we're called to go out into it. Amen? Even if it's hard, even if we get dirty, even if it just drains the life out of you. My dad used to always say, I just want to be dead. I'm like, gosh, what a weird old man. And now I've got a beautiful wife, a growing family, bought our first house, and I just want to be dead a lot of time. Because this life is just tough, and it's supposed to be tough. Being a mom, being a dad is tough. Your kid doesn't accept what you're trying to do in his life. It's a fight. Everything's a fight. So I understand all of these approaches. And here's the last one. Here's the one that Daniel took on. You could also be counter culture. So you're in the culture with different motivation. This one is where you fully engage. In this model, believers engagement with the pagan culture and co-working with the pagan people, but in ways that reveal the distinctiveness of the values of the kingdom of God. If anything, this is interesting, they become very conversant with and adaptive to the dominant culture externally, language, customs, but they are at their very core different in how they understand money, relationships, human life, sex, and so on. So this is Daniel. He's fully Jew in a fully corrupt Babylonian captivity, and yet he's taking on the identity of a Babylonian 
Not because he's shucking this, but because he's going to impact this culture here. That's tough to do. That's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Take this corrupt world and make it uncorrupt, one person at a time. Which one do you land on? I get angry too much, so whatever the angry one is, I just, gosh, I just want to be dead. And that's not a bad thing. Paul says it. I'd rather be dead, but I'm here because Christ has me here. So to live is Christ. But we all kind of lean towards one way. If you're a people pleaser, you're more of a chameleon. Uh, My old pastor used to say, are you a thermostat or a thermometer? When you walk in a room, do you adjust to what's going on? Or when you walk in a room, does stuff adjust to you? Some of us walk into a room and we just want to blend in. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. Jesus ruffled a lot of feathers, and they killed him for it. That's our life we've been called to, to ruffle. It's a fun, fun experience. Lastly, how does God respond to this lovely, lovely man? Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 14. What is God's commitment to Daniel in light of all this? So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So this is the eunuch. He says, okay, Daniel, we'll do that. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Just a couple things I pull out of this. They were better because of faithfulness and conviction and little things. You can take that and twist it and say, if you're good, if you tithe, God will open up the floodgates and you'll be rich. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying God's rules are there for a reason. He told Adam and Eve not to touch a tree because that was the better way. He gave Moses these ten laws because if you live and abide by these, life will be better. He tells kids, obey your parents and if you do, you will live a long life. Faithfulness pays off. Because God wants to reward faithfulness. And he rewards Daniel. And you look at the boys, and they're better off than all the other guys who had no conviction and just ate what the king gave them. Second thing I see in verse 16 there, these guys were allowed to hold to their convictions. This isn't always the case, but just because you have convictions that are counter to the culture in and you express them, you're not going to get hammered all the time. A lot of time, God blesses that. He wants that. He wants people to see his way is better. I'm very open about my faith in school. And I've never been approached by anyone saying, you need to tone it down. I've never had any boss come up to me and say, hey, Jesus freak, shut it down. God's favor, I think, is on me because he's given me a message to a youthful nation and I'm bringing it and God's allowing it. I may be killed, put in jail. For now, I'm going to keep preaching. If you send your kid to Tempe High and he takes a math class, he's going to get gospeled, so just heads up. Next thing, this is my favorite verse of it because it just speaks to the Christian life. Verse 17 here. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and all dreams. This is super interesting because the reason these boys were taken out is because they were smart. They were good looking. They knew their stuff. And then here he says, because of their faithfulness and the little things, God gave them understanding in literature and all wisdom. He's not saying... Now they understand the Torah and they understand the Jewish faith. What God gave them there was an understanding and a know-how of the culture they were in. So for redemption, we say we're gospel-centered and outward-focused. So this isn't the gospel-centered. Daniel had that. He was centered on the Jewish faith. This is God giving you an understanding of the outward-focused as you go out and do your thing. A couple of examples I see of this. I don't know if he's here. Ken McWilliams, he preached our socks off last week. He's a cop. He's never explicitly said this to me, but he has an uncanny understanding of the Mormon faith and the Mormon people. He lives in a neighborhood. He's surrounded by Mormon people. And when you talk to him, he just has incredible insight 
into how you deal with that culture. He told me, it's not a, a doctrine fight. You're not going to win with doctrine. Here's how you're going to win. Is you be open with your failures and you allow these people who aren't allowed to fail because everything's based off their obedience to fail with you and you earn their trust. That's insight God's given them. Other guy, Jeff Johnson, he's a missionary. He's out of town. I think Indonesia. That's quite a bit out of town. Um, but he works with Muslim people, and I met with them because I had a bunch of questions, and I was just looking for ways to fight them doctrinally. Jesus is God. No, he's not. Jeff, tell me how to beat these guys up with the Bible. And he said, here's what I've seen works best. You pray like you pray with them in the room, and they see you talking to a father in heaven about your concerns and your cares, and something inside them perks up. That's insight. That's God revealing, Jeff, you've got all the knowledge. I'm a gospel centered. You got it. Here's how you're going to take this insight. And that's what he was given Daniel. Here's how you're going to deal with this culture. Here's how you're going to understand their dreams and visions. Um, the last one, I, I see this a lot. As me and Aubrey start to raise a future convict, we ask a lot of questions. And here's what I've seen from... I don't want to say good and bad parents, but parents we'd lean into. So you can ask any sort of parenting question. Here's kind of where the people that are solid in their marriage, their kids love and respect them. Here's what I've seen to be kind of the common thread running through it. Parents who are faithful in the little things, prayer, training up their children, being committed to their marriage, almost every single one. When they talk about their kid, and specifically their strengths, they're always well aware that their strengths are more than likely going to be where they head into idolatry and weakness. So I talked to one parent, hey, oh, your kid's so smart. Yep, he takes after me. He's going to be the next Bill Gates. Cool. I talked to another parent, hey, your kid's really bright. He always has all the answers in Sunday school. Man, yeah, he, he's a really smart kid. Me and my wife are praying that intellectual knowledge doesn't take over heart knowledge. That's insight that a lot of parents don't have. Is you can look at your kid and see the strengths and not just get boastful about, oh, that's my boy. See that kid over there? It's my kid. It's, that's my kid and that's a wonderful strength. But here's where it's going to fall. Here's where it's going to be an issue in his life. That's what Daniel was given. He wasn't given Bible knowledge. He had that. He was given insight into the people he was going to be dealing with good stuff. Verse 18, let's end this. At the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Here's kind of my three takeaways for you. So what? Daniel, cool, 15-year-old kid holds to his convictions. Here's what I'd encourage you to think about as you leave. First one, evaluate your approach to culture. So where do you lean? Do you like to be a people pleaser so you don't say enough? Are you bombastic and rude and you say too much and you're trying to convert this entire world without the help of the Holy Spirit? Kind of what's your flinch when dealing with culture? We all have various cultures we're a part of, but we flinch one way or the other. Which one is yours? Second one, evaluate your obedience in the small things. So Daniel, it was food and wine. I love food and wine. I would have said, Daniel, no biggie. Daniel thought it was a biggie. God sees no small things. Obedience is a big deal for God, no matter how small. God doesn't need a microscope to examine our lives. Everything is on full display for him. So what areas are you taking shortcuts where you shouldn't be? And lastly, verse 8 says, Daniel resolved or purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Here's what I'd tell you. Purpose in your heart like Daniel. Here's what Daniel had to look to. The law. He knew this was God's way of living and he purposed in his heart, I will not defile it. We have a far better way to purpose in our heart. Does this story sound familiar? 
Daniel 1 through 7, we take a prince out of a land and we take him to an evil place. King of the universe in heaven has it all, comes to earth. Braveheart's probably my favorite movie, and the very best part is at the very end. Isaac the Bruce. Braveheart people? Yes. Isaac the Bruce is kind of a coward the entire movie. And you get to the end, the very last scene, and Amish, the big old burly guy, is like, please, I just want this king to fight for us like William. He doesn't say that. That's what he's saying in his head. I read his mind. And Isaac the Bruce says, you've bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. Sword in the air, movie ends. Beautiful movie. Here's what I get from it. We all want a king to come fight for us. It's easy to be a king over there. Jesus came down into this earth to fight for us. He wasn't like Daniel who was kidnapped in the middle of the night taken here. Jesus, before the beginning of time, said this is how it's going to be. Despite everything I have in here, I'm going to set it aside, Philippians 2, and I'm going to come down, and here's how I'm going to win this battle. I'm going to be obedient in every small thing that these people couldn't be. Daniel stands before a king. Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. This man is perfect by all standards I can think of. And the people say, give us that murderer over there. We want Jesus dead. Daniel gets blessed. He's given understanding and wisdom. He's brought to the king's court. Jesus gets traded for some slobby murderer. The great exchange. You purpose your heart that you don't have to be faithful all the time because Jesus was. And you don't have to worry when you fail because Jesus switched with you. Amen? I hope that's an amen. Everything unfaithful I've ever done was switched. And now when I purpose in my heart, God, give me the conviction to parent well in this corrupt world. I look to Jesus, and he gets bigger and better and more glorious, and my obedience gets easier in light of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for stories like Daniel that show us that you're working, that you haven't left this story, that you're actively working. You were working with Joseph. You were working when Israel screwed it all up. You were working when Daniel was kidnapped. You're orchestrating everything. In the light of your sovereignty and your goodness and your grace, you just ask us to be obedient in light of everything you've done on our behalf. Whether that's big things, whatever we would consider big things, or that's small things, like what we choose to eat and drink before this culture. God, thank you for your just sweet word. I open it and it's always new. It's always got something to say to me right where I'm at. So God, thank you for this church and this time together. Pray that we would continue worshiping together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you thank Jesus for Josh? Josh's message, please. Well, we're gonna we're gonna take some time to respond to that very important message that really points to conviction and points to being counter-cultural. And that's, that's what we have been charged to do as a church, as a body of Christ. And this morning we're going to spend a couple, couple different ways responding to that message. Um, <clears throat> in a couple minutes I'm going to ask Josh and the rest of the band to come up to continue to lead us in worship. And I would invite you to, to join them with your hearts and your minds to really sing out uh, with all you have to the Lord in thanksgiving. There's also an opportunity for you to join us um, in our ministry to, and help support us <clears throat> Excuse me, financially. And there's some envelopes and there's some mailboxes in the back of the room. If the Lord is leading you to support us financially, I would invite you to do that in response to that message. We're also going to respond corporately this morning. 
those of us who are saints, who are followers of Christ, we're going to remember him this morning through communion. And I have a communion table to my left. I have a communion table to my right. There's also a table in the center of the room by the pole. And I'm going to ask you to respond in remembrance of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished, his life, but also his his death. And we look forward to a time when he returns, but that time is not yet here. So until that time arrives, the Lord has instructed us, 1 Corinthians 11, to, to do this in remembrance. So there's a bread element, there's a drink element, and when you're ready, those of you who are followers of Christ, I'm going to ask you to to come forward and respond.